0: This month sees the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And today on the podcast, we've got a conversation about children who survived the Nazi concentration camps with Dr. Rebecca Clifford, Associate Professor of History at Swansea University. Rebecca is the author of an upcoming book, Survivors, Children After the Holocaust, and she spoke to BBC History Revealed editor Charlotte Hodgman. About 300 Jewish children who were brought to the Lake District to build new lives after surviving the Holocaust.
4: So we sort of were talking previously about this is a big year for anniversaries, Second World War anniversaries, particularly um, regarding around the Holocaust. Yes. Um, so we're approaching the 75th anniversary of the liberation of, of Auschwitz, um, but we're going to sort of we want to be talking about um, another perhaps less known part of this of Holocaust history, um, which are the the kind of the orphans of the of the Holocaust, the children who survived the the death camps, survived the Holocaust, um, and some of whom came to Britain, to the to Lake District. Yeah. Um, so tell me, tell us a little bit about how this actually happened. Who were these children um,
2: and, and how were they brought t- to Britain in August 1945? Absolutely. Or well, maybe I can start off by saying a bit about children who survived mm. the Holocaust in a broader yes. sense. Yes, yes. Um, because there were an estimated between 150,000 and 180,000 children who survived the Holocaust. That is only 10% of Europe's pre-war Jewish population of Mm. children. So really, a child's chances of surviving the Holocaust were very, very low. Um... Of the children who survived, there were many ways that children could survive the Holocaust. For younger children, most were not liberated from concentration camps. Most survived in hiding throughout Europe, being hidden by non-Jewish families, often families in the countryside. Mm. Um, That was happening, you know, from France to Poland, everywhere there were hidden children. But there were children in all the major concentration camps as well. Of course, when we talk about children, I think we probably think first and foremost of young children. But the definition of what was a child is important here because uh, different organizations defined childhood differently. Many of these children were, in fact, teenagers. Mm. So teenagers up to 16, up to 18. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the children who came to Britain in the summer of 1945, the vast majority of them were teenagers, mostly boys, mostly 16 years old or older. Mm. Okay. So I work specifically on the very young children, but they were a tiny, tiny handful. Mm. They had a different trajectory, as it were. Um, So the children who came in, in August 1945 all came from the ghetto camp of Theresienstadt. But not all of them had actually spent all that much time in Stat. So, towards the end, like, the, basically liberated right at the moment the war ends. Uh, in fact, actually, the Russian army took control of the camp the day after the war ended in, in Europe, so the 9th of, of May uh, 1945. The older children who uh, were, you know, part of this cohort that came to Britain, most of them had only spent you know, maybe just a couple of weeks in Theresienstadt because they had come from other camps on death marches. Mm. As the Nazi empire collapsed, there weren't too many places left where prisoners could be taken. So some of them had come from Auschwitz. Some of them had come from Buchenwald. Uh, Buchenwald, of course, was was liberated in in April 1945. Some of them had actually come from both, uh, from Auschwitz, moved to Buchenwald, then moved to Theresienstadt. So there was this huge influx of prisoners. Um, but it wasn't the same for the younger children. The younger children had often spent years in Theresienstadt. Um, in fact, for I think all the children who I look at, all of whom were, were 10 years old or younger at the time of liberation, um, they had no memories of any life before the camp. Their earliest memories are always uh, from the camp.
4: And, and Theresienstadt, wasn't just to clarify,
2: wasn't a death camp, was it? That's what right. type of what type of camp was it? It is a very hard camp to classify mm. because there was no other camp like it. Uh, it's sometimes called a ghetto camp. It's sometimes called a transit camp. You could call it a concentration camp. It's all of them. Mm. Um, it was a place that was envisioned as a sort of model camp, which was really m- meant for show. By the the Nazis meant it as a sort of camp for show to prove to the Red Cross and other concerned international bodies that prisoners were being treated properly, which is, of course, completely untrue. Mm. Um, What made Theresienstadt special, however, was that there were, well, among other things, there were um, a number of children's homes in the camp. There was nothing like this in any other camp. And children in the camp were protected to a degree. Now, the children, the very young children who came to Britain in the summer of 1945, they had all been in a ward for motherless children in in Theresienstadt. Actually, they all knew each other from the camp. Mm. Um, In the autumn, late autumn of 1944, the children's camp, uh, sorry, the children's homes uh, in Theresienstadt were all liquidated and most of the children were sent to Auschwitz, where almost all of them were murdered upon arrival. So... Why these very young children were still in touration stat when it was liberated, that's a question that can't be answered. Mm,
4: okay. Um so most of them or some of them would have would have actually experienced places like Auschwitz and like you say Buchenwald where
2: Conditions would have been a lot different, would they? Absolutely. Mm. Um, I mean, this is what we're talking about. The older children here, so yeah. mostly teenage boys, would have been working in places like uh, Buchenwald, in, in Auschwitz-Birkenau, as slave labourers. Uh, some of them had years of experience of slave labour. Then they had come on death marches. They were often almost, you know, barely alive. By mm. the time they got to Trajanstadt. they were literally hanging on even a few more weeks and they probably couldn't have survived. Yeah. Um, by the time they arrived in Treblinka, the camp itself had changed because all these you know, tens of—I of, can't remember exactly the number—but a considerable number of prisoners on death marches had come to the camp, and suddenly it was the conditions were, you know, horrific. Mm. They brought typhus with them and dysentery, so that people were dying like flies. As as one of the the boy says who I, I talk about in the article, yeah. um, so in a sense, by the time they arrived at the model camp, it was no longer very different from any of the other concentration camps so
4: once once these um, had been liberated um, we'd, we were sort of talking about a, really a handful of children who who kind of came over to to England. What happened generally to children who you know found themselves without parents or family um, you know, at the end of the the Holocaust?
2: Great question. Um, Just to put that kind of number of children in perspective, and we will never know exactly how many children that was, you know, the children Mm -hmm. who at the time, in in the parlance of the time, were called unaccompanied children. Um, But some sort of, you know, tens of thousands of of Jewish children. Uh, They were, of course, existing in a sea of 13 million children, across Europe who had lost at least one parent in the war. So the experience of being a confused and unaccompanied child at the end of the war was not a, just a Jewish experience. It was a very common European experience for children. Um, there was a, a kind of, I think you could go so far as to say there was a sort of battle over who got to claim those children, in mm. fact, with a lot of different groups competing to claim the children. Um, There were reports at the time uh, in Britain, certainly the aid agencies who were looking for children on the ground in Europe trying to help the children they found in camps were sending back reports to, you know, the the agencies based in London saying there's no young children left alive. But it wasn't true. There were young children left alive, not in in enormous numbers in the camps. Mm. But the difficult question of who should get to claim these children made it very, you know, it wasn't straightforward where they could go. There were Zionist... Um Groups who wanted to claim the children for Palestine. There were local Jewish organizations who wanted to claim the children. Um, of course, their Jewish communities had been decimated. They were thinking about how can we regrow. Um, there were international humanitarian aid organizations um, like the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. They were trying to decide, you know, if these children have surviving relatives, should they be returned to their relatives? And the fairly difficult questions mm. involved. Um, for the children that came to Britain, they there was a lot of work done to try to make sure that they had no surviving parents or relatives. Of course, in the end, some of them did. Yeah. And these relatives were, were eventually found. Not all of them went back to live with their families, however, and that was quite a, a, a common experience if you look outside this small group of mm. children. Um, so,
4: there, so there were about 300, weren't there, children yes. sort of? aged toddler up to sort of 16. Um. Actually aged up to...
2: Okay, so the uh, British Jewish community um, negotiated with the Home Office mm. to bring these children and got the Home Office to agree to allow 1,000 camp survivor children into Britain. The Home Office's own stipulation was that the children had to be younger than 16. Right. Right. But knowing what the reality on the ground was going to be like, some of the representatives of the Central British Fund, which was the main agency that took responsibility for the children, a Jewish-British agency, mm. um, they said, well, you're going to have to allow for the fact that we might not know the age of many of these children. So even though the Home Office had said only under 16, 75% of the children were actually older than 16. Um, In fact, there were some that we were at least one that was even older than 18. I mean, you have to keep in mind these children were really good for obvious reasons at lying about their age. Mm. It had obviously kind of helped them survive Survive, in cases. So they saw an opportunity. They were happy to pretend they were only 15 years old. Yeah. In the end, then they found that most of them were older. Very young children. There were not many.
4: Yeah. Um, So... One one question I I was was wondering was why um, you mentioned in the piece that um, uh, the British government wasn't ke- keen on having any children come here, which kind of surprised me because um, you mentioned that you know th- there were sort of these images coming out from these concentration camps and, and Europe was finding out or the world was finding out for the first time what, what had actually been going on. Um, why were the British government so reluctant to have to, to kind of to help these children?
2: There are a lot of reasons and just in the, I don't want to defend the British government, but (laughs) no one wanted to take these children. It Mm. wasn't just Britain, I suppose I wanted to say that. Uh, There was no country that was enthusiastic about taking the children, although there were many, um, you know, Jewish Jewish organisations that wanted to take the children. At the kind of level of national governments, there was no enthusiasm Mm. anywhere. Um, In terms of why this was the case in Britain... Obviously, there was anti-Semitism. I, I'm not going to pretend that wasn't the case. There was certainly there was a group of um, conservative MPs. This was actually during the war and not after who wrote to, you know, kind of wrote an official letter saying we really, we, our Jewish community is big enough. We really don't want any more, which if you know anything about the British Jewish community, you'll know it's not very big. Yeah. Um, even there was a fair amount of reluctance among British Jews as well because they didn't particularly want to draw attention to themselves. There's obviously a long history of anti-Semitism in this country. Mm. Um, there were fears that refugees from the continent with very different ways, with you know, not able to speak English and different customs, would bring unwanted attention to the Jewish community as a whole. There were also concerns about you know, labor issues. And so actually one of the stipulations um, was that the children would not work. Mm. But keeping in mind that Britain was uh, unique in many ways because we had had ten thousand children come on the Kinder transport. Um, that there were Kinder transport children that went to other countries as well, but mm. Britain took more than than any other country. So they were still at this point, you know, kind of during the war and afterwards, concerns about what would happen to those children as well. So there was a possibly a kind of thinking that, well, we already have a lot of children. We don't know if we're going to be able to ever return them. We don't want any more. So the Home Office um, uh, stipulated that the children who came, well, they came on visas that only allowed them to stay two years. The goal was uh, not for them to settle in Britain. That was never the goal. The goal was for them to come to Britain, have a period of recuperation and move on. Mm. Um, of course, that's not what happened. Uh, but the Home Office was was quite worried, and the aid agencies they had to, you know, they had to deal with that fear as best they could, which is why they effectively took over. You know, they took charge of the children, and all the funds for helping these children came from the British Jewish community. The government didn't add a penny. Right. Okay.
4: Um, and there were sort of two. There's sort of two main women, weren't there, behind kind of getting the children here, and, and also um, the, the Central British Fund. Um, so Alice Goldberger um, and Anna Freud. Um, tell us a little bit about those women. They
2: sound quite remarkable. Um, there were so many remarkable women yeah. involved, actually. It's not just those two, um, but oh. I could we'd be here all day if I was going to tell <laughs> you about all of them. Because this was um, humanitarian aid was in many ways a kind of new field. I mean, obviously had existed before the First World War, but this was a really a burgeoning field in which there were lots of opportunities for women to step into professional roles. Mm. So you find aid agencies like uh, the Central British Fund. There's a lot of women that hold very important roles in these, in these um, agencies. Um, but in terms of the, the two who you've just mentioned, uh, Alice Goldberger is an absolutely fascinating person about which I always feel I, I wish I knew more. Mm. She never left any collection of her own personal papers that allow me to better see who she was as a person. But she trained in early childhood education and early childcare. She was from Berlin and, um, born uh, at the end of the previous century. She had a lot of experience working with young children and she, like many uh, German Jews, left, um, I don't know, I don't want to tell you the wrong date, but you know, there's sort of an, an, an outflux of German Jews in 1938-39 yeah. before the war started. I think she arrived in Britain in 1939. Like many so-called Enemy aliens. She was then interned by the British government. She was interned on the Isle of Man, um, but because she had this uh, experience working with children and was interested in psychoanalysis, she was uh, she was actually kind of you know helped out of internment on the Isle of Man by Anna Freud. Well, Anna, Freud, Anna Freud was, of course, um, the daughter of Sigmund Freud, but in her own right was uh, one of the founders of the field of child psychoanalysis. And she had a, a very important project during the Second World War. She founded and ran something called the Hampstead War Nurseries. The War Nurseries were places where children who'd basically lost their homes for whatever reason, young children, mm. could go to live. There were three different sites for the Hampstead War Nurseries, and. Um, so children whose houses had been bombed or whose mothers were working uh, in the war industries and couldn't care for them could go to live in Anna Freud's Hempstead War Nurseries. And Alice Goldberger, once she was taken out of internment, uh, headed up one of the Hempstead, the Hempstead War Nursery at uh, New Barn. So she had a lot of experience working with yeah. children in kind of you know, t- traumatic situation, really. Mm. So in in the summer of 1945, she was recruited to help run a reception center center at Windermere for these children who came uh, from Stat. So that she kind of effectively left uh, the Hampstead War nurseries and went immediately mm. to Windermere, where she was one of the people who organised care for these children.
4: Yeah, and they, there's some lo- lovely sort of details about them getting. Getting all the dormitories ready yes. and and all for the, for the children when they came because of course they didn't know who they were going to be receiving did they? Yes.
2: Um, I, although it actually I I to this day find it remarkable that the communication was that poor mm. that they had no idea who was coming. They simply knew that three hundred children were going to arrive. Yeah, you know, at night, and they were. As I think we all would, when you hear children, you think of young children. Yeah. So they were ready for young children. So they went all around and they put all these teddy bears and dolls on the beds, and of course, then the children who arrived were teenage boys, yeah, mostly. <laughs> mm. um, but there
4: were there were a handful of, of sort of little ones, yes. weren't there? Um, so I mean, what sort of uh, sort of in terms of health and, and mental health, how how were the children when when they arrived? I mean, they. It, I mean, you can't uh, you can't even imagine sort of the trauma that they they've been through. Um, you know, how do they go about sort of helping them really to sort of build a new life for themselves? They were,
2: I have to say, the the, the care workers who were involved in the Windermere reception camp. They were a remarkable bunch of individuals. Mm. They were often very interested in and informed by psychoanalysis. Quite, you know, it, it was a growing field at the time was kind of a new a new thing um and they had thought very carefully about um you know what they knew about the situation that the children had come out of and they knew for example that the children in concentration camps had had years where they had their lives had been you know dictated by rules hideous rules too Mm -hmm. so they thought right Rules probably aren't the right way to go forwards for the children once they arrive. We need to give them quite a lot of freedom so they can, we can earn their trust basically, mm-hmm. and we know that's not going to be easy. There's some wonderful accounts of the older children actually. Um, one of the care workers who who worked with them at Windermere, um, a woman named Margot Hicklin, she uh, she saw the boys, the older boys, one day just in a fit taking all these chairs and, and breaking them. And she didn't know, should I stop them breaking the chairs or should they just let them break the chairs? And she thought, well, they've got some aggression they need to get out. Let's just let them break the chairs. But she did ask, you know, why are you breaking the chairs? And one of them said, it's because we didn't have a chance to break the heads of the Nazis in the camp. So we need to get it out now. Mm. So she said, well, fine, get it out and and you'll feel better for it. Which was actually quite a sort of radical approach to (laughs) childcare, both at the time and, and now for that matter. For the younger children, I mean... The very fact that Anna Freud was involved should be kind of a big, you know, <laughs> signal mm. that psycho uh, psychologists and psycho um, analysts were really interested. They were expecting the children to not be normal as it were. In fact, the word they often used for the children was denormalized. Mm. There's a kind of assumption there. And actually, I think the children were probably much more normal than they gave them credit for. Um, but they kept a very, very close eye on these children, very carefully took notes on their behaviour. And then one of the things they found about the children was um, actually that they really had a very deep distrust of adults, which wasn't surprising because they hadn't had too many adults stick around in their lives up yeah. until that point. But they had great faith in each other. They knew each other well. Mm. And so they um, behaved in a group, Um the, the kind of role that normally would exist between a, a mother and a child, for example, a, a child and his or her parents, that was fulfilled by the group mm-hmm. in the case of the younger children. And actually, in the end, um, you know, psychoanalysts like Anna Freud believed very deeply that normal development in a child came from a healthy relationship with a mother. These children deeply challenged that because they had not had any relationships with their mother. So the assumption on the part of kind of, you know, standard psychoanalytic theory was, well, they must necessarily then have, have, you know, psychological problems. Mm. In the end, actually, they they didn't. And so Anna Freud really had to revise her own thoughts and say, well, the group has stepped in here and has played the role of of the mother and the father. um, And the children... Uh, yes, they had some strange behaviours, but they overcame them quite quickly. Yeah. Was that the same with the older children? I think probably, yes. I yeah. mean, there was a really terrible and very mm. damaging assumption that the children would not be normal. Mm. And if we step away from these the small group of children and look at that much bigger group of unaccompanied children, that fear was was there yeah. universally, the aid agencies and lots of writers and, and um, different people who were kind of observing the children in the early post-war period were terrified that they would be almost as if there was a kind of like infection in them and yeah. that they would never get better. And actually, they, you know, for the most part, came out to be completely normal and ordinary people. Yeah. Um, I think one of the hardest things for them was overcoming that assumption that they would be abnormal. Yes, yes. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This, you know, for us, it makes us feel sad, but it's oh. important to remember that for the children it made them angry. Yeah. The parents had betrayed them. They didn't come back. And, and they needed to talk that through with a sympathetic person who could explain, you know, yeah. your mom wanted to come back, but she couldn't come back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better.
3: with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp H history extra.
1: eBay Motors is here for the ride.
4: Um, and what about health-wise? You mentioned that um, in the piece that uh, one of the, the stipulations made by the government was that they all had to be sort of healthy yes. children, but actually some of them had did actually have TB. Yes. Um, were there any other sort of health problems that kind of had, res- as a result of, you know, the malnourishment and the, the conditions that they, they lived in?
2: So Absolutely. Um, and I think I mentioned before, you know, the children were good at, hiding their age for good reasons. They were also very good at hiding illness for, you know, the same reasons, basically. Um, Many of the children were ill, um, although none of them were very ill or very visibly ill. And I've always wondered to myself, I mean, as you've said, the Home Office stipulated they had to be well. And, you know, Britain had this scheme to bring over a thousand uh, concentration camp survivor children but lots of other several other countries had a similar scheme and they all stipulated the same thing we will not take any child who is not physically well and mentally well as well mm. of course then unwell children did slip through that slip through the net um for the younger children a lot of them were suffering from vitamin deficiency yeah um, of the very youngest children of all, uh, two of the girls had uh, severe problems with the strabismus of the eyes from vitamin deficiency, and one of the boys uh, couldn't walk very well because okay. he'd been so deprived of vitamins. But it, they overcame these problems as mm. they got nourishment. Basically, yeah, uh, it took time. It took time oh. to overcome them. I mean, young bodies were bound more quickly, yeah. but um, you know, but it could it could take years. And for the older children who had TB, I can't remember which one of the children it was, but I remember reading this account once and very much stayed with me. It was just about how boring it was to recover from TB. (sighs) I mean, keeping in mind, we did have um, antibiotics. They had only recently come into use at the time. Um, But still, uh, treatment for TB was just a long, arduous period of rest. And some of them kind of, were forced to rest for three years. And after being in the camps and putting their lives on hold, and they were like, you know, teenagers, they just wanted to get out to and live. live. Yeah. And it was just so horrible to have to wait and postpone life and wait and wait and wait. But they did eventually all get better. Mm, yeah. Um, I
4: mean, as part of your research, you've tracked down a lot of the, of, of actually some of these children who yes. actually came to Britain. Um, and you've spoken to them and, you, and you've, you know, you've heard their their sort of memories of that. Um That must have been quite a moving and, you know, quite an extraordinary experience to to find these, these, well, men and women now. Um, How did you, you know, tell me a little bit about that. How did you find them in the first place?
2: I think by accident, rather, because I have for the past... Many years now, been working on a book uh, not on these specific children, but very broadly on child survivors of the yeah. Holocaust. um and specifically i I have been interested in their post-war lives, so how they kind of walked out of the <laughs> remains of Europe and what and got on with their lives. and um so when I was starting research for that book, uh, I'm a oral historian by training. so I you know my the main way I do research is by interviewing people, and mm. that's what I love. That's my favorite part of my job. And so when I was starting this project, I um, I put out a call. There's an association called the Child Survivors Association of Great Britain. And in their newsletter, I just put a little blurb saying, I'm writing a book on child survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, you know, if you'd be willing to uh, have an interview with me, I'd love to hear from you. Mm. And the first two people to contact me were actually two of the Toddlers who arrived. Wow! Um, so I had not known anything about their stories before that mm. time. So I really learned from them, and I just, I just thought to myself, this is such an extraordinary story. It actually mm. deserves its own book. So that's the book I'm starting now. So the, okay. the but the kind of neck Now that this sort of broad book on child survivors generally is finished, I'll be starting a book on this very specific group mm. of, of child survivors because I think here's a story that just it's just screaming to be told. Yeah,
4: um, I mean, you mentioned three three um, individuals in in the piece. Um, uh, who you know who you so we've been talking sort of before this interview about how some of them were were quite willing to, to to share their experiences, but others were a bit more kind of reticent. And perhaps hadn't faced, you know, the things that had happened to them. Um, you know what what you know? Tell me some of the things that you found out from some of the stories that you found out from these people that you you
2: interviewed. So when I – as I said, sort of the first – for the two first people to contact me uh, in this doing this other project, well, two of them were among the toddlers who arrived in in August 1945 to Britain. And one of those toddlers was Jackie Young, whose story is is described uh, in the article. Um, I mean, Jackie's story is really amazing. And so I interviewed him, I think, back in 2014, and I just – I thought this is an incredible story because here's a boy who was so young when he was deported, really just, you know, an infant. He was, a ba- yeah, and was, he was nine a baby, months old, wasn't he? Right? Yeah. And he has obviously then no memory of his mother, um, no memory of, of, of any family. His, his mother was uh, unmarried and so he was, he was born out of wedlock. Um, he's tried his whole life to learn more about... This brave woman, who was his mother, who tried to protect him, who, in, in, and there's very limited information about her. Um, but in any case, so he was an infant sent off by himself to to Theresienstadt, and he managed to survive. And he came to Britain uh, in in August 1945, um, and he was among this group of, of toddlers who um, who was so closely observed by uh, by people working for Anna Freud, and. Then he was very quickly adopted. And I think to understand Jackie's story, you need to understand adoption in the 1940s and 50s because it was not generally the case back then that adoptee parents told children that they were adopted or explained their histories. Mm. So that, that came later. That's something that kind of develops from the 1960s, 1970s. But yeah. so Jackie's parents were not unusual in that they hid his history from him. But still, he found out through a series of really very shocking events when he was kind of in his, I, don't know, I think, from sort of age 10 through age 20. First, he found out that he was adopted, and he sort of had to deal with that. And then somebody let slip that actually he wasn't just adopted, but he wasn't even British, and he'd always just thought of himself as a, you know, yeah. Jewish London guy. And and this was a real shock to find out he was Austrian. But the real shocker came... Um, when he was getting married, I think he was 20 years old. And, of course, to get married uh, in the Jewish tradition, you have to prove that you are Jewish. And the easiest way to do that is to show that your mother was Jewish. Mm. So – but, of course, Jackie was adopted. So when he went to register the marriage, um, the officials said, well, we, we have to know that your birth mother was Jewish. And his adopted mother said, oh, you'll just have to you know take my word for it. She was. She was. And they're like, well, that's not good enough. So – his adoptive mother said, okay, I've got some some papers that will prove it. They're in the safety deposit box. I'll I'll go and get them. So she did. And, and they're all there. You know, there's Jackie and his fiance and his fiance's mother. And his adoptive mother comes back with these papers. And as she's handing them over to the officials, he just grabs them and looks at them and sees that he was from a concentration camp. Gosh. He was, you know, a young man. He had no idea. And he just he just started screaming, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. Um, so, so this is, you know, a really extraordinary aspect of Jackie's story. It's not just kind of where he's come from, but how he learned about mm. who he is. And I think he's certainly, you know, not alone in having spent many decades of his life then trying to put the pieces together to see who am I? You know, yeah. Where did I come from?
4: Did he manage to find out um, about his mother? In the end. He has
2: found out a great, great deal, and yeah. he has done an extraordinary amount of research. Mm-hmm. But as is always the case when you deal with the Holocaust, it's often easier to find out about people's deaths than about their lives. Yeah. <laughs> and that's very really unsatisfying in a lot of ways. Um I have the experience actually from my own family. Uh, so my mother is also a, a child Holocaust survivor. And, and I was doing research trying to find out about her father, my grandfather. Mm. And I found a great deal out about his death. But it's his life I want to know about. And that remains terribly, you know, that's intangible really. So I think I know um, from talking to Jackie that the one thing he wishes so badly he had was a picture of his mother. But all the searching has never turned up a picture. Um, and, and probably at this point he's done everything he can and he's had archivists working with him and uh, probably that, that is not going to be possible, but he's certainly done a quite remarkable amount. I mean, in a way, um, for those who wanted to know about their past, they kind of had to become historians. Mm. They had to learn how archives work and how to crack them open. And sometimes they were working, you know, before the the, the end of the Cold War when it was very difficult to not impossible to get archival records yeah. that were on the other side of the wall
4: yeah um, and you mentioned earlier that um some children did actually find out that they did have surviving parents um and again is uh, we mentioned one of the, one of those boys in in the
2: piece yes. um what what happened what happened there so in a broad sense or I can tell you about that specific case as well but in a broad sense um, I don't think we'll ever be able to establish just how many child survivors of the Holocaust had surviving parents. But it's probably a higher number than you would think. Mm. If you look at individual countries or individual regions, we can see that it's often about like a quarter to a third had at least one surviving parent. So it was not an uncommon experience to discover, oh my gosh, my mother's alive, my father's Mm. alive. It was also not an uncommon experience to not really be able to make that relationship work again. Keeping in mind, of course, that survivor parents had gone, you know, they were often camp survivors as well, yeah. having gone through something psychologically very, very difficult to deal with. They also had nothing at the end of the war. Uh, the systems for returning property to um, Jews who had had their property stolen from them, well, it was non existent in places, so they couldn't necessarily reclaim their homes Um, and there was an enormous shortage of housing after the war so they had nowhere to live they didn't have jobs they had no way to care for their surviving Mm. children it was quite common to feel that a child especially a young child would be better off in the care of an aid agency you know better than with an impoverished family barely scraping by and indeed um, when I think about the children who were returned to their parents in my broader study, well, none of them had a very good experience. Mm. This was a really very, very difficult experience. So the specific case I, I talk about in the article is uh, Vicky Kohnheim. He um, was one of the children, obviously, who, who came to Britain in August 1945. And he... D- the Alice Goldberger discovered in nineteen forty six that his mother was alive. It might even have been late forty five I can't remember oh, so quite, not, quite, not, quite not, early not, on yeah. I think it was I think it was nineteen forty six um the Red Cross relayed a message that she was looking for her son mm. um she was working in Austria at the time I mean she had survived quite a you know crazy journey on her own um And there was a lot of communication for a long time about do we return Vicky to her or do we not return Vicky to her? She seemed to have by that point also have had uh, some other children by another father. There was a lot of debate about it. And in the end, she didn't take him back. So it wasn't up to her. She couldn't make that decision. There were lots of people involved in in the decision. And there was a lot of wariness. I mean, Mm -hmm. Alice Goldberger was very... Worried. I don't have any doubt that she loved Vicky and she wanted to protect him, and she wasn't sure that returning him to his mother was really the best thing to do. Yeah. And so you can see in the archival records there's a long debate of what do we do? Do we send him back? Do we not send him back? Does she really? And then she was sort of moving around. She immigrated to the United States at a point. And finally, when Vicky was in his late teens, he decided for himself. Well, I want to go and try to make this work. Mm. So he emigrated to the states to live with his mother, who was at that time living in a very, very small community uh, about I think like three or four hours away from Seattle. And he had a go of it, and like so, so many other child survivors, it did not work out. Um, she was struggling emotionally and psychologically in her own way, and they just couldn't connect. And of course, he. He'd grown up and he'd never known her. Yeah. Um, so he ended up staying uh, and living in Seattle. He still lives in the Seattle area to this day. Um, yeah. But he left his mother's home fairly quickly. And, and, you know, by that point, he was a young man ready to make his own life. He went into the military and he, tra- you know, did his own training. And but that was a relationship that that did not work out. And that was not an uncommon story.
4: Did they talk much about what kind of the experiences? Or did they were those sorts of memories blocked
2: out? So, I this is a really, a really interesting question, basically, mm. because for many years, um, I mean, these were children who who lived in a kind of ambit with psychologists, right? Because they, you know, these were these were in some ways Anna Freud's the, yeah. the children that she had worked to to make this home for and. Um, There were a lot of assumptions about the nature of the children's memory. So uh, most of the children were interviewed um, by a psychologist uh, named Sarah Moskowitz, an an American psychologist, in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And there was some discussion in those in those interviews about, you know, do you think you've blocked out the memories and Mm. and. I don't think any of the children particularly blocked out the memories. I think they were too young to remember, right? Because we don't remember our first three years of life. That's a well-established kind of, we don't really understand why that happens, but we do know that that's the case. Mm. So these children were, I mean, they were kind of around the age of three, four, five when they were liberated. So it shouldn't surprise us that they have fragmented memories. Yeah, That's the nature of how all of us remember our childhoods. And the only way that we're able to make a coherent story out of our childhoods is because someone helps us understand how those memories fit together. And that someone is usually our mother or our yeah. father. Right? If you don't have a mother or father, there's no one to help you put it together. So so like um, there's a, another uh, child I discuss in the article, Zenka Husserl. She um, does have memories of the camp. Um, you know, but they're fragmented, yeah. but they make sense, uh, you know, to a historian. I thought, oh, right, I get it right away. Uh, she remembers having her head shaved when she arrived to, you know, because of lice. And she remembers screaming and she remembers the guards who, who um, the sorry, the guards, the, the dogs that the SS guards had. Yeah. Um, one of the other children who I don't talk about in the article has this memory uh, of being kind of made one day to undress and then walk around naked in the sunshine um you know not as a something traumatic or anything just as this kind of strange memory of why did they make us walk around naked in the sunshine of course well we know why that is um the red cross was coming to inspect uh the camp and they wanted the children to sort of look a bit healthier Healthier. so they tried to get some sun on their skin basically so so some of the kids have memories of these specific incidences often their memories are are more of things like oh there was there was like you know like a flower box on the window ledge and we got in trouble for digging in the dirt or we these things children remember somebody locked us in the closet and um, so they all have fragmentary memories of the camp. Yeah,
4: yeah. Um, and I suppose they wouldn't have seen their parents, if they did travel with their parents to
2: a camp initially, they would Some have been split them, up. Yes. And in fact, it was probably the fact that they were split up that helped them to survive. Yeah. Um, because children who were with, there were children who were with their parents in iteration step, but they tended to have a a more precarious Uh, you know, circumstances basically. The children's homes were in some ways protected in the camp. So those children had some protections on them up until the autumn of 1944. But a few of the children um, do remember seeing their parents in the camp. Um, In fact, One of the children, uh, if you could see the photograph I'm pointing (laughs) at now, it was her. (laughs) Um, She remembers her mother coming into the room and giving her a piece of bread and saying, I'll come back. But the mother never came back. And after the war, that little girl, uh, Tanya, she she kind of told this story to Alice Goldberger and said, I can't forgive my mother. You know, for us, it makes us feel sad. But Mm. it's important to remember that for the children, it made them angry. Yeah. The parents had betrayed them. They didn't come back. And and they needed to talk that through with a sympathetic person who could explain, you know, your mum wanted to come back, but she couldn't come back. That was Rebecca Clifford.
0: Her book, Survivors, Children After the Holocaust, is due to be published in August 2020 by Yale University Press. Rebecca has also written a feature on this topic for the January issue of BBC History Revealed, you can read that on our website at historyextra.com forward slash holocaust orphans. This story is also the subject of a new BBC2 drama, The Windermere Children, which airs at 9pm next Monday, 27th January. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Claire Wright will be discussing the battle for women's suffrage in Australia. <laughs>